this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by Audible, the leading provider of audiobooks. Book Riot listeners can download a free audiobook on us and get an extended free trial of the service by going to audiblepodcast.com slash bookriot. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 49. We're recording on Friday, April 18th, 2014. I'm Rebecca Shinsky, and I'm here with Jeff O'Neill, and we're the editors of BookRiot.com. Happy Friday, Jeff. Happy Friday. Um, I, it's, I feel like we should talk about the weather every time. I don't know. Why is that? <laughs> Because I'm, I'm that old that I'm like, hey, and it's it's uh, 51 degrees and largely unremarkable re- weather here in Brooklyn. <laughs> I don't Maybe, know why. I think right now it's just avoidance tactics because yesterday was a sad day in the world yeah, of books. That's probably it. I don't know how to transition, but Gabriel Garcia Marquez um, died yesterday at the age of 87. Um, if you don't know who he is, you probably have at least seen his books on those paperback favorites tables because 100 Years of Solitude and Love in the Time of Cholera hang out there. Probably two of the most beloved works of 20th century American, uh, excuse me, South American literature, but Mm -hmm. also world literature. I think that's the thing that I was thinking about yesterday when this news came out. Uh, Marquez has been sick since the late 90s with cancer. Um, And we've heard reports here and there that he hasn't been doing well. He hasn't um, made a statement or been seen publicly in several years. So I think this is something we sort of saw coming, but sure. I don't know. When was the last time we lost one of these like world titans of fiction and literature? Like this is, he feels like one of those figures from a different age almost. Yeah. It feels very significant. Yeah. I was thinking about that as well. And, um, I don't know. Nobel, I was, you know, I was thinking about Nobel Prize winning Mm -hmm. writers. Um, Of course, it also got me thinking about Toni Morrison, who is in her 80s, um, is a a titan of literature, I think, on the same level. Maybe she and Marquez, in in some ways, are in a class of their own Mm -hmm. um, for modern writers. Yeah, I mean, maybe Rushdie. I mean, maybe you put them up there as like a world figure of literature. Yeah, um, it, it was certainly interesting on Twitter yesterday to see not just how quickly, you know, remembrances from readers were coming forward, but just how many of them there Mm. were. And that's encouraging. I'm sure, you know, some of that is the circles that we run in on, Mm. on the internet, but even comparatively, you know, last week we talked about Peter Matheson's passing and it felt like there was a swell of discussion uh, about him online, but but not nearly to the degree of readers talking about Gabriel Garcia Marquez. I'm um, sharing quotes from his work. We had like a little bit of a cage match behind the scenes at Book Riot about who was going to write <laughs> the memorial right. post. Um, uh, many readers feel very connected to and changed by. Yeah, his work. I was thinking about that and why that might be. Besides that, it's great. I mean, there's that, but there's a lot right. of great work out there. I was thinking for me, and I think for a lot of us that grew up to be somewhat serious book nerds, 
it was the first work of literary fiction that had that same sort of enchanting feeling that you got from reading about Narnia or Middle Earth or hmm. some of those like really transporting books from when we were kids. Because he wrote about the real world, but it was also, I mean, there's a reason it's called magical realism. There were right. the elements of the wondrous. Well, it's like your dead grandma shows up at dinner and it's no big deal. Yeah, you know, in and, this um, world. That, I think that was something that kind of opened my eyes to what literature could do and kind of, because it's also, it's sad and melancholy, but it's also hopeful and generous at the same time. And it's I think it's unset a lot of his work is unsettling or yeah. at least it unmoors you from the very right. beginning. There's no uh like gentle easing into the world of, <laughs> of these stories. You're just right there on the firing line yeah. um with the colonel and trying to, you know, muddle through and make sense of uh, what this world is that you're in, who these people are and uh what's going on in a world that can feel so real, but also, like you said, so magical and enchanting. Um, for most of us, you know, I, Marquez is the first encounter with magical realism. Um, mm. And man, it's kind of hard to top that. Like, Yeah. Yeah. You know, and he doesn't, he doesn't have sort of the fatalism of like some of the other titans of 20th century literature. You know, he's not, he doesn't have like Kafka's fatalism or, you know, Fitzgerald's yeah, right. kind of sense of decay or it, Joyce's obscurantism. It's, it's very accessible. Maybe that's what I'm looking I for. Think, it's I accessible. It's, yeah, and it's serious, but not dark. Yeah. Um, or not all dark. You right. Know, it's, it's, uh, you know, the other thing I was thinking about with him, too, is how closely love and longing exist in the books, death mm -hmm. and life exist, memory and forget. Like, these things we think of as binaries tend to live in real proximity to each other. Um, and especially love in the time of cholera and 100 years of solitude, you know, mm -hmm. unquestionably his two Titanic works. So there's a lot of other great stuff I should say. Um, but his last book, I think was the novella, uh, that came out in 19, uh, excuse me, 2004. So it's been a while since he's, he's published anything else. Great at short stories, a lot of great nonfiction as well, sometimes overlooked, um, a political guy. He was friends with Fidel Castro. He, he actively, um, I guess I guess disapproved of Pinochet. Um, the rumor—I don't know if this is a rumor or if this is fact—but he got to know Castro so well that he would send him, un, you know, drafts of unpublished novels oh, wow. um, ahead of time. <laughs> There's also a great story too about his first published novel was "100 Years of Solitude," which oh my goodness, <laughs> what a way to come out! He grew of the to gates. really dislike it because he was so afraid that the rest of his work would be overshadowed by it. I I don't know that it was overshadowed by it, but. It certainly was the book that came to define well, his career. If that's your first published work, then man, have you got to be afraid of the sophomore yeah. slump. No, definitely. And there's this story. I think that book came out in 67 in Spanish, at least. And the editor who first read it sort of kind of read it all in one sitting at night. And he called Marquez to his house. And the story goes that Marquez came in like covered in... You know, it's been raining and he came in with his wet shoes and there, his editor had just been reading the pages and like flinging them all over the room. <laughs> and so Marquez comes in to see his novels strewn all about and this editor raving about how it's the best thing he's ever read. And wow. It's sort of a great scene. That's a great story. Um, some of the, you know, it's, it's, it, Neruda said that 100 Years of Solitude was the best work of Spanish literature since Cervantes. Um, William wow. Kennedy, who wrote Ironweed, said it was the first book since the book of Genesis that should be required reading for all of humanity. Like, this is the kind of, the kind of <laughs> thinking and feeling that a lot of us, you know, that represents, I think, mm -hmm. um, 
the way people felt about him. And it's, I think when we're older, it's going to be weird to say, yeah, I was alive when Marquez was alive. Cause he does seem like, um, a, a figure of literary, not antiquity, but of lore uh, as much as anything. So fare thee well. Yes. Uh, Gabriel Garcia we'll Marquez. Missed. All right. Got to get to our first sponsor. Stuart, it. it's audible.com. Audible, which over 250,000 audiobooks to choose from every genre you want to. I bet 100 Years of Solitude is on there. I'm not I'm sure. sure that I it bet is. Love in the Time of Call. That's my favorite. I don't. We didn't ask. What's your? What do you have a favorite? Uh, I love Love in the Time of Call. Yeah, Colorado. I do too. I, I prefer it. Though I do like 100 Years of Solitude. I prefer it. Uh, I prefer Love in the Time of Cholera. Um, every possible genre: fiction, nonfiction, bestsellers, romance, mystery, sci-fi. And if you've got an app that can play sound, if you've got a device that can play sound, probably Audible supports it. Over 500 devices. Um, are supported. You can download and listen on your iPhone, uh, iPhone, Android device, BlackBerry, Windows Phone, whatever you've got. Um, you own the book. So unlike streaming services or the rental services, once you've bought it through Audible, you own that file and you can do with it what you will. Um, so kind of, I, I realized we hadn't talked too much about some of the other details about the sort of larger point that Audible is awesome. You can get a free trial. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash bookwrite, free 30-day trial, which includes a free audiobook to give her a go. A couple of things that I was thinking about this time is, um, so Michelle and I share an account. So, you know, you can use the same account for up to three smartphones mm. or four compute and four computers. So we can pick things out and then we pay for a book once and we can both listen to it. So it's, you can kind of do like a family plan, which is nice. Um, the other thing that I th- thought was worth thinking about too is that, um, so we use it on our iPhones. And so you go, to, you go through the Audible site, and you log into your account, and you buy or you do your monthly subscription purchase there. And then you can download it or not download it on whatever phone you want to. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's nice as well. So it's not, you're not clogging up um, everyone's phones with your purchases, but they're there. And once you've bought them, they're available right in your Audible app to download. So it makes it super easy um, to use. So I think that's... Uh, do we have a pick? I've got a pick. Do you have I a have pick? I have a pick. Yeah, go first. And... I'm listening to Self-Inflicted Wounds by Aisha oh, Tyler. Oh, I've heard about right that. Now? Is that great? I mean, what do you think? It's great. Cool. Um, well, it's it's exactly what I want. And to me, it was a gift from the... Uh, algorithm at audible i went looking for ah <laughs> yeah I went because because you like kaling and right, Faye, kaling i'm guessing and yeah. tina Faye. did i already talk about this on the show I no can't i don't think i don't think um, so it's it's fantastic it's a memoir of basically all of the ways that she made giant mistakes in her life um from childhood up through career and adulthood with the central thesis being that the way to become awesome is not by avoiding failure, but by actively seeking out opportunities to fail. Mm. Um, you know, not that you intentionally do a bad job or that you intentionally hurt yourself, but that you run towards the scary thing and you do the scary thing and whether you fail or you succeed, you grow in some way. And, uh, it's hysterical. I'm, I'm still in her childhood. Um, but she is writing about, and uh, she writes and speaks in the audio book about, you know, sort of the run of the mill mistakes that kids make, but also some kind of unusual mistakes mm. that she made as a precocious uh, young girl with lots of moxie. And uh, she's a great narrator for it. Uh, if you don't know Aisha Tyler, she's an actress, a comedian uh, in the 90s, in the heyday of MTV's run of Love Line with Dr. Drew and mm-hmm. Adam Carolla. She was one of the sidekicks there. Uh, she voices Lana on Archer, which I love. 
love. Uh, and so it's fun to have her voice uh, riding around in the car with me and walking my dog. And I'm just cracking up. It's a, it's a whole lot of fun. And uh, that philosophy of hers that you just, you know, jump into the scary opportunities in your life, um, hoping that the net will appear. And also knowing that even if it doesn't, uh, you're going to learn something and you'll be more awesome at the end than you were at the beginning, uh, just resonates all mm. the way up for me. So that's my pick. What's yours? Um, my pick is Creativity Incorporated by Ed Catmull. I think that's how you say his name. C-A-T-M-U-L-L. Oh, our uh, colleague Peter yeah, Damien just wrote a great re review, review of, of that. it this week. I actually just started it. Um, I'm not that far into it, about an hour or so. It's, a, it's 13 hours long. Um, but it is about – Ed Catmull was one of the three founders of Pixar with mm. John Lasseter and Steve jo uh, Jobs. Um, and he talks about the early development of Pixar. Um, Catmull is a PhD student at the University of Utah. Uh, and in the mid-'80s, that's when Pixar got started. And, he, and Catmull was the really the engineer of the three. Um, Lasseter was a storyteller, and Jobs was kind of the money man <laughs> in 86. Um, and it's the first part is the story of getting from his PhD in starting Pixar to Toy Story. And then the rest of the book is a deep dive into Pixar's creative process and how the oh, company cool. is put together, um, which is, I find really fascinating. Um, there's a couple of things I'm interested in about that. One is that, you know, I like those origin stories. Um, I saw a documentary on Pixar a while back that was about these early days that I found fascinating and I wanted more detail and that offers this, but also that Pixar is a giant company that, does just kind of one thing well, mm -hmm. um, and that's make animated movies for the entire family, I guess is the cliche, but that appeals to a wide range of, of people. Um, and they have their own systems and structures to sort of engender creativity, which, you know, that's kind of one of the black magics of, of creativity is like, can you learn it? Can you structure it? Can you provide some sort of framework to make it happen? Um, and the answer here is yes and no. Um, but I like that it sort of uh, deals with the, the difficulty. Um, so that's, that's my pick. I think that's, it's really interesting. That sounds great. That Venn diagram of making stuff yeah. and business is so right. fascinating and, to me. And, uh, when I picked it up, when I just opened the, it, the page on Audible, just so I make sure I got the name right and narrated in the length, um, you talked about the algorithm. So the people who also bought, so mm -hmm. uh, the hard thing about hard things by and, uh, by Ben Horowitz, which I have also listened to on Audible, David and Goliath uh, by Malcolm Gladwell, which I listened to on Audible, <laughs> and then the Everything Store, which is which, what I'm listening which to, is right you, now. which you're listening to Audible right now, and Flash Boys by Michael Lewis, which I am going to. So the <laughs> algorithms got, got me got us pegged uh, right there. So even though I didn't that's find funny. out about that, that's pretty good. So if only we shared an account, yeah, Audible I know, would know, I know everything about us. So that's audiblepodcast.com/slash/bookwrite. You can go there. Uh, and get your free trial. Give her a shot. You can share it with your friends or family. Um, up to three people on d different smartphones can share the same account. So you can cool. pretty uh, pretty economical way to listen yeah. to audiobooks. Thanks to Audible for sponsoring. While we're talking about picks and recommendations, just a quick shout out. Next week's show is going to be episode 50. Mm. I know. Uh, and we will be doing a special 
book gift recommendations show. We're going to skip the news and just talk about books for an hour or maybe more. Um, specifically, books that make great gifts for moms, dads, graduates, and even for yourself for the summer. Uh, so if you're shopping for someone for one of the upcoming you know, family holidays for a graduation gift, or you're just looking for something to take on vacation or curl up in your backyard with, mm. uh, or just you know enjoy a nice day in the park, you can shoot us an email, podcast at bookriot.com. Let us know who you're shopping for, even if it's yourself, uh, what kind of books you're looking for, and we will holler back with some custom recommendations on the next episode. Yeah, I hope there's not so. I'm trying to think of what giant news stories would, would be very difficult for us to uh, avoid talking about. Um, nothing really came to mind, but the one, the big story this week is, is oh. almost up there. I mean, it's... And it actually, it was last, I think oh, it broke right. last Friday, but we recorded last week's show yeah. on Wednesday because of scheduling. And so then, of course, this came out right after we finished the show. Yeah. I guess if Amazon like bought Barnes & Noble or something, like I think we maybe would have to like postpone yeah. the recommendation. Right. Or that so, might necessitate its own special episode. Yeah, we have two episodes in one week. But this week, um, Amazon bought or it announced that they are going to buy Comixology, which I think we have talked about on the show before. We have. Um, I'm a recent convert. Yeah, and I use Comixology on my uh, iPad. Mm -hmm. And it's a app that lets you download and read comics from a variety of different comic book publishers. It includes all the big boys, as far as I'm aware. I'm not an expert in comics, but... I know enough to get myself into trouble by saying things like that. Um, <laughs> I just know that my bank account was in trouble the yeah, month that right. I finally decided I yeah. was going to explore. But it has DC and Marvel and Dark Horse and Vertigo and Image and all, you know some of those yeah. might be imprints of the larger first guy. second is in there. Yeah, um, and it has been a huge success, Comicsology, and, and for good reason. Um, some of which are the reasons Amazon bought it, but one reason is you think there are a few fewer bookstores these days. There are even fewer comic shops. And there never has been as many comic shops as bookstores. So as comics and comic book movies and comic book TV shows have become more popular, it's been increasing. There's been more demand than there ever was mm -hmm. for comics, um, but not the infrastructure in brick-and-mortar stores uh, for as many comics as people want. Most Barnes & Nobles carry some, but not the full array that you're going to get a place. Like, say, Austin Books and Comics in Austin, Texas, or Forbidden Planet here in New York City. Um, so this provided a way, wherever you were, if you had internet connection and a, a device that would read it, they have Google apps um, for Google tablets as well, you could download and read right there. And it's a great experience. I it mean, that's so, it's so good. It's a it's great so app. It's so beautiful. Um, and I think you, know, you mentioned internet connectivity. I think that's a part of this story too, is that yeah. there have always been really rabid communities of fans around comics, but the internet did something for those yes. communities by giving them, giving comics fans a way to connect to each other. And at this point in the internet's life, it's sort of tale as old as time that, uh, you know, the lone book nerd or the lone comics nerd at the cafeteria table with nobody to mm -hmm. talk to discovers the internet and um, finds a community of other people who want to nerd out about those same things. And to, uh, to a large degree, like that's our story too. That's mm -hmm. how um, we ended up with book blogs. That's how we ended up creating book riot. And so like that resonates to me that now there's this, not just an app, but a really great, beautiful app and a way Easy to, to use. Um... Right. And like, I'm, I, had been I've been really slow to come around to checking out comics, but the thing that did it was a combination of Saga, mm. which is awesome, which uh, my friend Josh Christie sent me 
volume one, which was a bound edition that had like the first five or six trades all in one volume. Um, and I got hooked on that and I wanted more of them. So I, you know, was going to check out Comixology and a new comic called Sex Criminals by Matt Fraction and Chip Zdarsky, which I'm going to talk about more later in the show and is not scary the way that the title makes it sound. But our friend Paul Montgomery sent me the first trade, um, which is, you know, just the one issue in a little paper. I don't even know how to describe it. Like, I guess it looks like a typical comic book, but I wouldn't know. Uh, And I read it on a Saturday morning and I was like, I have to read the rest of these immediately. And I wasn't going to put my pants on and leave the house. So I got a a comic Where's your comic book store in Richmond? Do you know? I'm sure there must be one. There must be one. I have no idea. Well, that's, Um, I mean, that's a perfect example, right? And, and knowing how my reading life goes and my habits, like I want, I I want to read these comics and to stay up with them and get them the first day that they come out. But um, I'm not far enough into it, at least not yet, that I'm going to be going to the comic shop every Wednesday to get the new things that are out. So for I think for a casual reader, particularly, it's a great way to test the waters. And uh, it makes to me, it makes so much sense that Amazon made this purchase. Yeah, I mean, I I think for me, I'm not surprised at all. I actually, I've read once I started using Comixology, like, this thing is amazing. And I read some stories about for last year, I think it was the highest grossing non-game app in the Apple App Store. Oh, wow. I mean, because you buy the, unlike a lot of other apps where you buy content, this one you can buy it through the app. You don't have to go mm-hmm. to the Comixology homepage, buy it there, and then have it download. Like Comixology is willing to give Apple 30% of the price, which is what you have to do if you have in-app purchase. I don't know if, if people know this. Um, that's why you can't buy a Kindle book in your Kindle app on your iPad because Amazon doesn't want to give a- uh, Apple 30% of the purchase price. But Comixology made the decision, and I think it was smart, make it as easy as possible mm-hmm. for people to buy. Cause, so here's a good example. Um, I read comics a lot in the mid-90s when I was like 14, 15. Fell away, came back a little bit, had fallen away. again. I came back for graphic novels for a while when I was in college and grad school. And then I sort of got back into it a little bit um, before the Avengers came out anyway. Uh, but then I read, after the Avengers came out, I read that the second Avengers movie is going to be based on a series of comics called The Age of Ultron that, that, mm. that ran a while ago. And so one night I was up, I think Michelle was out of town or so, whatever, <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to read Age of Ultron. And they were all there. And you could buy them all. And I just like binged bought yep. Age of Ultron. I bought like 14 $3 comics. It wasn't that many. but like This is how you go broke. I, I, I bought like seven or eight $3 comics in a row. Mm-hmm. And it was so easy and it was fun. And I was glad to do yeah, it right it, then. Right. They It really solved a problem mm-hmm. too when they came out with Comixology because the first like original e-reader designs that were just e-ink, you know, and screens with black uh, text on them did not lend themselves well at all to any kind of illustration and comics oh, right. rely yeah. are so comics are so visual it's a visual medium that you couldn't really do it like i don't you couldn't read a comic on you know a regular kindle or a nook or a kobo no. device um and the rise of iPads was really the thing, like that big, gorgeous screen that yeah. could do color, that could do images. and uh, Yeah, when I mean, the iPad 3 came out that had the high-density screen, I think that was the mm-hmm. iPad 3, um, that's the first time I started looking at comics. And I was like, it looks amazing. And also, the other problem comics had in the Age of Ultron is a really good example is back issues could be extremely hard mm-hmm. and expensive to track down um, because you can't buy like, 
you know, you, like now you can buy like a paperback of The Great Gatsby, right? That was printed essentially right. yesterday. You couldn't go buy like reprints of the Age of Ultron in the comic book store. Right. It seems like with comics, when they, you know, make a new issue, if it sells out, then they have to make the determination of like, are we going to do another yeah. print run? Are we going to make a trade paperback that issue, is still hard right, to find? Or how are we going to, to approach that? It's, I've had a really great experience with comiXology so far. Um, there were, there was a little surprise, I guess there's always a corner of the internet that's surprised when Amazon mm. buys a thing. But I think the larger story there is that Amazon's continued trajectory is recognizing when a company is doing something better than anybody else is doing it, or is the only company doing the thing mm-hmm. um, and acquiring that. Um, and there, when there is re- no real alternative or competitor, which is a smart, if a little bit ruthless way to do business. <laughs> and you know, like that, that was the story with Goodreads. Goodreads was by far the biggest yep. and best social book networking site. There are others, but there's nobody um, that was doing it on near the scale. That like Goodreads not even a was. tenth of the scale. Right. Um, so you could, you, you know, you could decide you didn't want to use Goodreads anymore because Amazon owned it and you could go to library thing or you could go to Shelfari and some people did, but uh, not nearly as many people did it as threatened to or as acted like they were very upset online. And if I had to guess, I would guess that's going to be the story yeah. with Comixology that there's there's really no other great place to go for such centralized access. Um, I think there are some other digital comics places where you could get some of the material that's available in comicsology, but uh, Amazon, it was a really smart thing. Um, the part of me that's critical of Amazon wishes that like Kobo or the company that owns mm-hmm. Kobo, which is called Rakuten, um, giant corporation had recognized that value and made the move first. Um, but that's not the world we live no. in here. Well, and you said there are other places you can go. Um, I've toyed around a little while with um, Marvel's uh, comic book app called Marvel Unlimited, mm. which is it's more like Oyster in that you buy, a, I think, it's been a while since I've used it, um, but you buy a subscription and you can sort of do all you can eat. Um, and not everything's available there. Like that's, I think, one reason I got rid of it is like if I wanted to go, say, read Age of Ultron, I wasn't really guaranteed it was going to be there. Um, and it was also one publisher, so I couldn't get my Batman fix, for example, mm-hmm. there. Um, I, I guess my initial thing, I had a couple of thoughts about the meta story. Um, one is, I had, at first had a similar reaction that I had when Amazon bought Goodreads, which is I sort of wish Marvel or DC had bought Comixology, kind of like I'd wish Random mm. House um, or, you know, Hachette or their parent companies, I guess, uh, Bertelsmann and, and Random House's case. Had, had had the foresight to buy it. Um, but I also am a little surprised. I mean, for this one, it Comixology under Amazon, I don't think poses any more threat to comic book stores than Comixology itself really did. Right. I mean, it was already, I would assume, um, causing a lot of trouble for independent... Or, there is no such thing, as, first of all, I don't think is a chain comic book store. So independent comic book store is sort of redundant. Um, so I'm not really sure that Amazon owning it is now like now comic book stores are in trouble. I think they were in trouble from Comixology before. I also wonder, I'd like to see the financials. Like I wonder why Comixology wanted to sell to Amazon. Like, cause as far as I know, they were doing great business, 
So unless they had scaling issues or maybe there's, you know, the founders, there was a big fat wad of cash. Or, I mean, just the the kind and quality of tech developers that would become available to your company if you merged your company with yeah. Amazon. Kind of like what we've seen what happened with Goodreads after the right. acquisition. Like they threw a whole team at the Kindle app for Goodreads. Um, maybe Comixology can do, I mean, maybe Comixology is thinking of having their own branded tablet through Amazon or something like that. Or, I, I don't know what I it mean, would be. Maybe you'll, be, you'll now be able to buy comics digitally through the Kindle store. Yeah, that would make sense. On If you have a Kindle tablet, mm -hmm. um, maybe it comes natively with a Comixology app. So some of it could be Marketplace. Um, but they, no price was announced, which I thought was interesting because it felt like with Goodreads, we knew the price pretty quickly, right? Yeah, I think it was out that afternoon. Yeah, or within we a day were, or we two. Were, we were doing like back of the napkin calculations. Which I nailed, by the yeah. way, I'd like to say. <laughs> That's right. Um, I'm never going to let myself forget about You're the king of the that. back of the napkin. Yeah, it's, it's true. If, if after right on the front of the napkin, I'm toast, but the back <laughs> of the napkin, I'm all right. That's where the sweet spot yeah, is. Yeah, so I don't know any number. Comixology, I haven't, I, I dug around to see like how many, you know, subscriptions they have and it's very kept it behind closed doors. So I, I don't have any idea. I would guess it's in the multiple, I guess it's nine figures in the hundreds of millions mm -hmm. of dollars range, but um, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I wonder for personal use, the thing I wonder is, is Amazon, since you can't buy Kindle books or the Kindle app on the iPhone, I wonder if Comixology is going to take away that buy now, right now, hmm. you know, maybe you'll have to go through. Amazon and download it kind of like you do with a Kindle book, yeah. which is not the end of the world um, for my use case, but I certainly prefer the way it is right there. Um, anything big else story. on comics? It's, no, it's a big story. That was the the big moment of the week. The other the other thing it got me thinking about is like, of course I should. I didn't even. I wasn't even thinking about Comicsology being bought by Amazon, but once they saw, it, I was like, of course. Like mm -hmm. I was trying to think, what else is out there that like, what's the next one? This would have been it for me. Hmm. Like Wattpad or uh, something yeah, like Wattpad that? Yeah, Wattpad maybe. That yeah. came up. I think we were talking to what, Andrew Lasowski on, mm -hmm. we uh, used to edit uh, HuffPost books on Twitter on the day that this announcement came out. And Wattpad seems to be another one of those uh, in the book community, like literary digital resources that other sites are trying to do the same thing. Wattpad's a, a community for writers and self-publishing. Um, but Wattpad is doing it better and bigger. They just, I think they just got forty-six million dollars. Yeah, in funding. another round of funding, um, which means their that, valuation is going to be right, crazy. Man, nothing to sneeze at no. if uh, if Amazon wanted to beef up the community aspect mm -hmm. of their self-publishing efforts. That would be a way to do it. And um, and someone said, well, what if what about Amazon buying like Book Expo America? Um, which oh yeah, small it's potatoes. not going to happen. I'd be really super shocked because community and events is where Amazon is weak. Mm. Um, there's not really a community around being an Amazon customer or an Amazon reader. Yeah, um, except which, Goodreads now. Right. Um, so may maybe they could do that. Uh, for, the, for the angle that Amazon is innovative and thinks about their customers uh, first rather than serving publishers first, it might be interesting to see what an Amazon version of Book Expo America yeah. would be like, but yeah. I don't think we're going to get to. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I don't know. Um, I, you know, the Oyster or Scribd or Entitle, one of these subscription services, though, yeah, maybe. it does feel like Amazon could roll, that, roll their own, but if one of them gets a lot more traction than the other one and becomes its own force, that might uh, that might be something that they look at um mm -hmm. in the book world it's hard to know uh what the next piece would be but um comics certainly makes sense it certainly does 
Um, but you know, if you, well, I mean, that's how hmm. Amazon ended up with Audible in the first place. Yeah, Audible, that's Audible was, is owned by Amazon. Yeah, and yeah, ABE Audible books, was uh, right. Audible was independent. Uh, was doing a better job yeah. with. And now it's the juggernaut. I mean, digitally, right? Yeah. And Amazon saw that and picked it up. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. So. Um, that's Amazon buying Comixology. We'll see. Man, we're going to have to prune the rest of these stories. I know. We, we got to going. Say about let's that. see. Um, <laughs> you mentioned in title, so I yeah, just want to jump to that. Yeah, you want to go that one? Quickly. Um, one of the things that we've really delighted in talking about for the last six to nine months on the show is the rise in ebook subscription options for digital readers. Um, and the newest of those to roll out is called Entitle. I think we discussed it um, when it launched back in the fall. Um, Entitle is different from Oyster and Scribd in that um, Oyster and Scribd are all you can eat ebook subscription apps. You pay the monthly fee and then you read as much as you want to. Entitle works on the same model that Audible does. You pay a monthly subscription fee and then you download um, two books of your choice that you get to keep. I think it's uh, two books a month for $10 um, or yeah, two books a month for $10, which is down from the $17 a month for two books that they charged when they initially rolled oh, out I didn't in, see that. in price September. Dropped recently. Yeah, it's yeah the, price, uh, the price has dropped. So now uh, the pricing is about the same. I think Oyster and Scribd are both in that $10 a month range. Um, so Entitled or Entitled has come into the $10 a month range as well. Their catalog uh, is bigger than Oyster and Scribd's. Um, they have more of the major publishers on board, um, HarperCollins, uh, Houghton Mifflin, Simon & Schuster. Uh, HarperCollins, as we've said over and over on the show, is the, the publisher that can be counted on to do these new digital things. But um, since this is closer to uh, to a traditional ebook buying experience, you pay your ten bucks a month. You basically buy these two ebooks um, of your choice for the ten bucks. You get to download them and keep them. It's not a streaming mm -hmm. model. Um, it's been interesting. They've, it seems like they've had a slower rollout than the other uh, two apps have, but now they've added support for e-readers. So rather than just being able to access your Entitle books on an Entitle app on a device, on a tablet, yeah. Uh, right, or your phone, you can now go through your Entitle account on a desktop um, to sideload mm -hmm. those book files onto your e-reader. So an e-ink device. So, I mean, this is cool. If, I think it's smart because there's a lot of e-ink only readers out there. Yeah. And if you're a reader who, uh, like the piece of resistance that we hear when, when, or that I hear a lot when I talk about how I really like Oyster is people who want to own their books and be able to mm -hmm. like know that those books will always be there for them if they want to go back to it. Where, you know, Oyster works more on that Netflixy type model where things might rotate in and out of the catalog. Um, if you want to keep your books and own them and pick two that you just hold on to every month, this is the way to go. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's, I think it's a smart move. Smart, yeah. Um, yeah, Oyster is the sponsor of the show, and we're going to do a spot for them in mm -hmm. a second. But in addition to um, the owning, the th other the other um, obstacle for a lot of people with Oyster and Scrib too, I think doesn't they don't have support for there's there's millions of e ink only Kindles out there, right? And a lot of people that's their a lot of people prefer to read on e ink devices. So I want maybe it's a nice move to try to capture mm -hmm. get some of those people hooked in. The sideloading thing is a bit of a drag. I mean, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, that's you have to have a little tech knowledge. Yeah. And to even be if able you know, even if you have tech knowledge, it's still a bit it's of a, pain. a drag. Um, uh, but it's a good idea, and I think I think other competitors would be smart to. Yeah, to and do it that. shows that they're making an effort to meet more of these customer demands. Yeah. Um, and my, I don't know, my spidey senses kind of tell me that the same readers who 
are hooked on the idea of owning their digital content are also more likely to want to be able to like sideload to hmm. a reader or they're more familiar with that process. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe that's bias. I feel like the more early adoptery, um, if you're into trying a streaming thing, uh, you might also not care as much about owning the stuff. I don't know. Yeah, if, that's kind of my sense too. Like if you're going to, I mean, if you are an er early adopter, even a middle adopter of technology, probably you care less about the value of the legacy platform. Mm, so right. in this case, it's ownership. But mm. we'll see. Um, it's interesting oh, to see I, the yeah. innovation and change in that space it happening. Is. Yeah, no, and I misspoke um, about the size of the catalogs. Of the three, uh, this piece, which is from the digital reader, and we'll have the link in the show notes, notes that um, Scribd has the largest catalog, mm. then, then in title, and then Oyster. Okay. Um, so also if being able to search for, you know, a lot of uh, major, you know, titles or big names is a thing that's important for you, then entitled might be something to check out. Mm. Um, and that'll be in the show notes, which are at bookriot.com slash podcast. Um, let's do a study. Okay. Are you cooled off? Cause this one's going to, this one's <laughs> going to get us worked up. I think. I I don't even know what's here to get worked up about. Okay. I read so this was a, I read a study. the piece earlier, and there's like no the bone has no meat. Yeah, well maybe that's maybe we'll get to. It. So a survey conducted by one poll uh, in the UK of 2,000 British men and women found of their reading habits found that 63 percent of men admit they don't read as much as they think they should. That's the headline that everyone was tweeting around. And well, the headline is. Survey finds 63% of men rarely read. Yeah, okay, right. That's not the same <laughs> as as much as they should. Do I think I read as much as I should? Do you? I don't, I don't know any reader who is fully satisfied with yeah, how much time so they spend. So that's part of it is like, that's reading, a weird thing. Including like uh, our colleague Liberty right. reads more than any human that I know. Uh, and I'm certain that if we called her right now, she would say, no, I don't read as much as I think I should or as I want, want to. to. So that's a biased question um, for sure. Like, it would be interesting with some numbers behind it. Like, how many hours per week uh, do you think you should spend reading? <laughs> or how many hours do per week do you actually, do you actually spend? spend reading? Like, I would, I'm interested in what those numbers mm -hmm. are, um, but those numbers aren't here. <laughs> um, some other stats from the story. Almost half, 46% of the men asked, said they're reading fewer books now than they did in the past. Um, a third prefer the internet and 30% engage more with film and TV. I guess that means and, watch. I'm not sure what engage means yeah, more there. And 30% say they haven't really picked up a book since they were obliged to at school, mm -hmm. which is sort of a confounder against that 46%. That's what I reading, said in critical linking the other day. Uh, yeah. Reading fewer books now than they did in the past. Like you know, some of it is how far in the past mm -hmm. is your school life. Um, unless you are a person who becomes a passionate reader, I would think most people yeah, read, right. read less after school read is over books, than they do in their um, regular adult um, 25 lives. Per, oh, sorry, go it's, for it. Like, I think the thing that really bums me out about this particular story, uh, besides the really super sad methodology, mm -hmm. um, is that it's done in support of World Book Night, which is like the coolest thing that the book world does Well, isn't that year. also a bias? I mean, I was thinking about that. Isn't that a biased... <laughs> funder because world book nights i think laudable goal is to get more people reading and in order for that goal to be noble it needs to operate under the assumption that fewer people are reading than we would like <laughs> well and 
so for listeners who maybe don't know what World Book oh, Night sure, yeah, good idea, is, good uh, it started in the UK and they've been doing it in America for the last couple of years. It's on April 23rd every year um, and publishers donate. I think World Book Night selects a list, I think, of 20 titles. Publishers donate special um, paperback editions for World Book Night of those titles and then readers sign up to be book givers. Um, you fill out an application and then they send you uh, like to your local pickup spot. It's usually a library or an independent bookstore, um, you go pick up your box, say, of 20 copies of Wild by Cheryl Strayed. Um, if you've been approved as a book giver, and then you go out into your community and you give those 20 copies of the book to um, people who maybe don't have access to books um, in general, with the idea of exposing them to it, giving them a cool book to read, and hopefully creating more readers in the world. Um, it's a very cool idea, and, and certainly following it online is a pleasure every year, watching mm -hmm. um, watching people go out into their communities. Um, Jen Northington wrote a great piece for us, I think, last fall about talking to strangers. No, about we should rerun that. Yeah, we should rerun that. That's a good, that's a good um, one. Yeah, about what it was like to, ha to, to hand out The Handmaid's Tale to strangers on a corner in Brooklyn. And how do you talk about a book that has that many big issues to people um, that you don't know, um, who you suspect are not readers, but you think this is a book that could get them hooked? So I think you're right, Jeff, that there's, there's bias in World Book Night funding this study because uh, they have a they have something to be gained from a result that says men aren't reading as much. And so we want to use World Book Night to try to get these men to read more. <laughs> and there's some bias in the reporting of the results because the this is a piece that I'm going to link to in the show notes that I read that we're reading from right now is in the bookseller.com, which is a UK publishing mm -hmm. um, uh, periodical. It, it doesn't give us any of the ladies numbers. Did you notice that? Yeah, I did notice that. And I, you know, I don't, I don't know what those numbers would show. And I think it's interesting to note, um, and it, it's a good thing that World Book Night does, that the the list each year, I think the lists get better and better each year. It's a very 20, good list this year. Of the 20 titles yeah. that are selected, but you can glance at that list and, and make pretty good guesses, I think, about which books were put on that list to appeal to uh, male readers who are male potential readers um, who need to get hooked. What's there for uh, women that we want to try to get hooked? There's, there are always some young adult selections to what books can we give to teens that maybe aren't into reading or who don't have access to good books, um, but that if they read this, they would want to become more of a reader. Um, it's, a, it's a list worth looking at. I did think it was interesting that there are no results about women or teens in this And I couldn't find study. a link to the raw data or any other like, um, it's, reporting I mean, about it. I don't, maybe the other, maybe the upside is that this is not hand-wringing about how the kids don't read anymore. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, anyway, I'm not sure what to say about it. There's a lot of trouble. I think that I think the only thing I really take from it that's interesting to me, at least, is this. Let's say that sixty-three percent of men who think don't think they read as much as they should. Let's take that as an accurate number, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. But that's a lot of people who who think they should be reading more, and it kind of gets back to one of the. I don't know. I, I don't know if it's a good or bad quality of how we think about books and reading that there's sort of a moral imperative layered on top of it. Um, that you should the, the read. Should, and that, the should is what's interesting And that to the me. more you read, the better you are. Yeah, but I think we also know, like, tell me if this is true, that even those of us who like to read pretty seriously know that there is no, like, threshold number of books that once you read there, well, now I've done it. 
Right. You know, <laughs> there's or there, there's no like confetti and balloon drop. Yeah. Now for, I've like, perfected have, my moral sensibility. Right. And, or like you have achieved your, you know, necessary page requirement right. for the year. And now you are well. You are a good person for 2014. You are. Right. Educa- mm-hmm. So there's not really a there there uh, in terms of the shouldness. Um <laughs> <laughs> if that makes any kind of sense at all. Uh, it makes sense in context. in context. I was just hearing the soundbite. Yeah. So that attitude is more interesting to me than any kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, we got to do something about Right. This. You could rewrite this with 63% of men want to be reading more. Or 37% of men think they read just plunk. They, they read as much as they think they should. Which, Which actually, you, in, that, you, bro. in that way... That number seems kind of high. One in three men think they read as many books as they should. Interesting. That's yeah, kind that's... of an interesting way of thinking about it. Um, anyway, I think this is a bad job. I'm, is... I'm putting this in bad job. I, this is super bad job. Um, there might be an interesting question here, but... It's just... It's bad job. I don't think it's... It's not malicious. No. It's not... Uh, it might or... be a little bit of FUD, I have to yeah. say. I think it's FUD. It's... It's not malicious, it's not pernicious, but it is FUD. If you don't know what FUD is, the acronym, I don't know, do people say FUD or they say F-U-D? I'm not sure, because it's an internet thing, right? I say FUD. I say it's, a capital F-U-D means fear, uncertainty, and doubt, which is like any headline or story you see which is meant to make you freak out or be anxious. It's mm-hmm. basically, your entire local newscast is FUD, I would this say. This is what, FUD city, population 63%? Yeah, FUD city. <laughs> Um, that's where this is population you. Um, so anyway, I think this, I'm going to put this in the, in the category of FUD. Let's go to something that's not FUD. I, more stats. So, um, Vita, which we talked about extensively, we follow them closely. We love, love, love them. Um, they do account annually of the, basically the presence of women in major reviewing publications, how many authors get reviewed and how many women get to do the reviewing. Um, and they recently released, uh, I think this also fell into like that dead zone between our early recording last week and mm-hmm. this week's show, a study of children's lit and how, how women fare in the children's literature world. And it is a completely different story. Oh, this is a much happier story yeah. than the gender count, uh, for the most part. This definitely falls under my, the kids are going to be all right mm-hmm. headline, um, really happen for the most part, really happy pie charts about yeah. how present um, work by women is in major publications from the American Library Association to the Booklist Editor's Choice books, um, the Boston Globe, the American Library Association's Coretta Scott King Award, Edgar Awards. Um, really, the only two, the only publications, well, there are a couple that still skew coverage toward um Towards male writers and but creators. I mean, the, are, yeah, the Stonewall yeah, Book Award is like 66% right, fellas. Right, there's uh, the LA Times Book Prizes for Young Adult Literature still skew towards men, uh, towards male writers. Uh, it looks like the Young Adult Library Services, the Prince Award, skews just a little bit towards male writers. Um, the New York Times Notable Children's Books also skews just a little bit towards male writers. But this is not nearly as bad as uh, the overall representation of, mm-hmm. uh, or lack thereof, of work by women in adult publishing. Yeah. Um, so, happy story. It's a good story, though it does remind me of the piece our friend and co-writer Kelly Jensen wrote mm-hmm. about how men still dominate the young adult and children's bestseller list. So, yes. they're winning awards and they're showing up, but the, we're still buying more men's books. So, that's, 
an interesting side note here, mm-hmm. but we'll drop a link in the show notes if you want to take a look right. at and, the specific uh, uh, While we're talking about kids' books and young adult books and women, uh, Kelly, uh, who writes for us and also runs a blog called Stacked, um, linked on Twitter earlier this week to a colleague of hers who runs a blog called it's yaloveblog.com and we'll put the full link into the show notes as well but this person is a teacher um, is a high school teacher and she has been thinking a lot about um, her name is Mrs. Anderson on her blog mm-hmm. um, she's been thinking a lot about what's going on with this uh, especially this New York Times thing that the bestsellers list in young adult books is dominated by books that are written by men um, so where are girl readers seeing themselves and also how are teachers addressing it? And so she conducted a really interesting six question survey um, to her female senior or her female students who are mostly seniors. And she wanted to see, do teen girls see themselves in the books that they are assigned to read for school? Um, so you can go, well, uh, you can go to the link and she asked them, what books have you seen yourself in and why? Uh, in which books haven't you seen yourself? What was missing? Uh, what do you like to see in girl characters? Please um, provide examples. What kinds of girls would you love to see in the books you're reading that you haven't seen before? Have you seen yourself in any books that you are required reading for school? If so, which books? And that's an interesting one. Mm-hmm. But as I started thinking about it, not so surprising. The answers are overwhelmingly no. Mm-hmm. Um, and then question six is the real kicker. Have you read any assigned books that are written by a female author or that features a female that sticks out to you? Please explain and provide answers. Overwhelmingly, again, no. Other than The Scarlet Letter and To Kill a Mockingbird, mm-hmm. most of the books, those big classics that are um, assigned to high school students, at least the high school students that Mrs. Anderson interacts with, are stories about guys. Mm-hmm. Um, man, That's rough. I had not... I hadn't thought about this. Yeah, we talked about it on Twitter a little bit. But um, it's, I, this is real. Yeah, it is. And um, it's bad and unsurprising once I started thinking about it. Probably yeah. the same for you as well. I mean, uh, our friend Amanda Nelson, her name of her blog was Dead White Guys. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's both tongue-in-cheek and tongue-in-lips, I guess. I mean, I don't know whatever the opposite <laughs> of that is. Like, that's also like satirical but true, right? That what we right. read as as high school kids and, and junior high and college to to a large degree still is people it's canonical work it's historical mm-hmm. work and that has been the domain of dudes and white dudes especially yeah, and, and white dudes over the age of 25 right um, and th- these are the books that are supposed to help us understand world history and world culture right. and literary history and literary culture and that also are supposed to help us come to understand ourselves yeah um, and as a, as high school students if the like based on this required reading list, you know, boys, the the choices aren't super great. It's just that boys have more. They're of them. there. Like, There's a Holden like, Caulfield. You can right. You can be Holden Caulfield or Nick Carraway yeah, or Jay Gatsby, yeah. or you can be a Hemingway character. Um, you've got Atticus Finch. Uh, right. Maybe you've got. We get Hamlet, Romeo, uh, Sydney Carton, Oliver Guy Twist, Montag David Copperfield, four fifty one. Right, look, we can do this. Yes, and for the girls, it's like Scout Finch and, and Daisy Prin. Buchanan and Hester <laughs> right. Prin. Yeah, um, the conversation we got into on Twitter was like, what were the first books that you saw yourself in? And like, other than Nancy Drew, which I loved mm. as a kid, I but don't. You didn't remember... read that in school, right? I mean, that's a different question, almost. Right, right. No, I read I read Nancy Drew for fun. Um, I don't think that I saw myself. In 
like, or, or, or any pieces of me really reflected back in a book that I was assigned for school until I was in college. And it was like uh, Sula, which yeah. is an amazing story about women's friendship and pieces of The Handmaid's Tale, mm. um, which... You know, I was thinking about this because your I mean, experience, like of I'm course, <laughs> I, I think your experience is representative also, but also got me thinking about like, I think that's one reason, especially a lot of um, high school girls of our age really liked, say, something like uh, Dawson's Creek, right? Mm -hmm. Because you got Joey. You got yeah. a character that was bookish and smart. Right, and Buffy for the same yeah, reasons. Yeah, right. And so I don't know if – I've never really thought about it in those terms, but you know, they, they were people that you could relate to in a positive way and sort of look up to. That didn't exist in books and yeah, not in really and, in movies. Right. Yeah, I, think, I mean, I, I confessed to you on Twitter last week that I see the value of To Kill a Mockingbird, but I don't love it as a personal connection. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't see myself in Scout Finch and I might be harboring like an inner Hester Prynne. Right. Uh, well, that's somewhere. not also, I mean, Daisy Buchanan and Hester Prynne are not awesome because they get, right. spoiler alert, murdered and ostracized. <laughs> like that's not right. a super great uh, outcome. <laughs> yeah. If, and those are the choices, right. you know, you can uh, be the woman in one kind of dysfunctional mm. relationship with a rich man or the woman in a dysfunctional adulterous relationship with the minister. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think I mean, there's also a lot of interesting questions about what do we want the assigned reading in high school to do? And I think that's a question we don't have a mm. super good answer to, frankly. Um, and to my mind, there's sort of two schools of thought that we muddle up. One is sort of the Kind of like reading, the reading in language arts we do should be like algebra, like it's a toolkit, right? Mm -hmm. You should know the grammar, you should do comprehension, um, and those sorts of things. And then the other one in writing and vocabulary. And another one is sort of a, the artistic, moral, historical mandate of reading fiction and literature. Mm -hmm. And they're not necessarily the same thing, right? Right. Um, but if one of them is like, is one of the goals that we want of required reading in K through 12 to create lifetime readers? The answer to I that would, is yes and no. I mean, that, yeah. that's both what we do and don't do at one and the same time. If that's one of the, is that the primary goal or not? The, is it historical coverage of like literary history and great books? Well, that might not be the same. Those goals may not overlap, right? Mm -hmm. To have a sense of literary history and to create lifetime readers. So, you know, I think this is one, this is kind of a crucible for thinking about that. Like, what do you want it to do? Right. What do you and want it to do? Because I think if you want to create lifetime readers, we should be picking more books that more people can relate to and love. Right. And I think I, I've been thinking back, I think two, maybe two or three weeks ago, we talked about the uh, CNN list of awesome women. Mm -hmm. And one of them, I can't remember the official title, but one of them was Meg Medina, who writes young adult literature um, for particularly for Latino and Latina readers. And she says that to, I'm paraphrasing, but she wants it to not be special or niche when books um, give Hispanic and Latin American kids a way to see themselves. She just wants young adult books to reflect people who are here, people who are out in the world. And it feels like culturally we're really moving to a place where we value more um, having books that kids can see themselves in as they grow up and find themselves reflected. And that it doesn't seem like that was a conversation that was happening like when you and I were kids and teenagers. Mm -hmm. um, the, there was more of a focus on 
you know, the reading list is about appreciating the history of great literature and great books. And uh, it just so happens that a lot of that history is about white guys yeah. because that's who had access to, um, to education maybe, and to publishing. But it, it seems like mm. we're, we're having a shift, which I think is cool. Yeah, I and, think so too. Uh, and so we, we can note the, that survey that Mrs. Anderson conducted, certainly not like our rigorous statistical. No, she didn't give much stats, um, but she gives the, the plain text she, answers, which are fascinating. Right, yeah. Um, you can read what girls themselves, what teen girls have to say about the books that they're reading in school, what they uh, like, the ways that they, what, what they wish there was more of. It's a really great idea. And we know that there are other teachers and librarians listening to the show. So if any of you feel so moved to conduct a similar uh, survey of your students, we would love mm. to hear about yeah. it. Um, and and what you're doing, uh, you know, to resolve that if uh, if giving your students more options to see themselves in literature is a, a thing that's a priority for you. So we'll drop a link in the show notes there. We better do our next sponsor, and then we, we got to do new better. books. We got we got chatty. Know, we got chatty. We have so many so many things this week, but <laughs> it's good. These are really good meaty issues this week. Uh, Oyster Books is back uh, this week as our sponsor, and uh, we've been talking about them already a little bit in this show. Oyster is uh, a, basically a Netflix for eBooks, unlimited eBook streaming service for $9.95 a month. Um, if you'd like to try it out, you can go to oysterbooks.com slash bookriot. Uh, Oyster gives you a library at your fingertips. They have more than 100,000 titles with more being added every day across everything from, you know, bestsellers to classics to science fiction, seminal biographies. Um, it was the first unlimited ebook subscription model to come to market um, that had one of the big five publishers on board. And as we mentioned earlier in the show, that's HarperCollins. Uh, they also have smaller houses like Houghton Mifflin, Rodale, Melville House, Other Press. Uh, they're working with Smashwords, which is a self-publishing platform. Verso Perseus and many others. Um, you know, the flip side there is also that HarperCollins is the only big publisher mm -hmm. to be on board. So if you go and search for, uh, say, Margaret Atwood, who uh, is with Random House, you won't get her um, here. So it's not a, a fully loaded ebook store, uh, but there are, I mean, 100,000 titles. Mm -hmm. That's plenty. <laughs> um, Oyster's available on iOS devices right now, only iPhones, iPads, and iPod Touch, but they do have Oyster for Android coming out this year. Um, and um, you and I have both been using it since, basically since they the rolled out. Yep. From the very beginning, long before they were sponsoring mm -hmm. the show, um, we've really loved it. It's a gorgeous reading experience um, on your phone. Um, I've tried all of the ones that have rolled out, all three of the ones that we talked about earlier in the show, Scribd and Entitled as well. And I think that Oyster has the best combination of um, look and feel what the reading experience is like, and also title discovery within the app. Um, since you're not purchasing the books, you can just access the full library from your phone or your iPad. You don't have to do anything online after you set up your account initially at oysterbooks.com slash book riot. Um, so you can open up the app and see themed reading lists. Um, they generate recommendations based on what you've read. You can find and follow your friends and see what they're reading. Uh, I love it. Um, it's given me 
a way to like when uh, when I get to the gym and I set up my station for the class, but it's 10 minutes before things start, I just pull it up on my phone and read a couple pages. Um, it syncs across devices. So then when I pick my iPad up later, I'm in the same spot. Um, you can have as many books going at a time as you want. There's no limit there. Unlike with the library, you don't have to wait for a book to become available. Uh, for as long as it's in the library, you can go back and read as many times as you want. Mm -hmm. And they recently added uh, note-taking capabilities, which I love. You can highlight and take notes, and you can now share quotes um, to Twitter, I think, um, from within Oyster, if that's a thing that you're interested in. So if you want to try it out, you can go to oysterbooks.com slash bookriot and get a free 30-day trial. Um, that's, I think, more than enough time to get a sense of whether the catalog gives you the kinds of options that you want and whether the reading experience is the kind that you want to have on your phone or your tablet. Um, you can check that out. A couple other interesting pieces since we were talking yeah, we'll get, about... Yeah, it's kind of a news hook to this. Yeah. Well, first, with the moms, dads, and grads thing, um, if someone in your life that you need to buy a gift for is a digital reader or you think would dig this, you can do oysterbooks.com slash gifts and you can give them a gift subscription. And the news that came out... Well, let me I talk about just, that real quick. Okay. That's a heck of a gift. <laughs> no I, I'm just saying because like, I'm not sure, I haven't gone through to try it. I'm not sure what the options are in terms of a gift, but um, let's say you wanted to give a year subscription, 120 bucks to a, a dad or mom, a grad or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. That's a great deal. I mean... Just think about the you know the what you can do, especially for a, a recent grad of either high school or college. Like they're going to be, I assume, hard up for money. But if you've got a reader that you're looking to give a gift for, that's a year's worth of reading, yeah. as much as they can eat um, for 120 bucks, which is a heck of a deal. If you've got a if you've got a mom or a dad that's a serious reader and they have an iPhone or iPad, that's you know I should say that um, that they can try it out on. I think it's a great idea as a gift for a parent. Um, especially one who may be, you know, not as technologically savvy because Oyster, there's no, you don't have to sideload crap. You don't have to go online and like download it and have it appear. You can right. browse it through the phone. You can browse it through the tablet and it's just right there. So I, I think it's a heck of a gift. But then the news story is we talked about Spritz um, a little while ago, which is a, a, a technology company that's working on speed reading. Um, and basically what they do is they use some algorithms and the way that we naturally read, we look for sort of anchor letters and words to help us speed up. And it shows you one word at a time, but in such a way that it's faster to read than just reading lines on a page. And Oyster and Spritz have teamed up. And if you go to oysterbooks.com slash Spritz, S-P-R-I-T-Z, you can try out Spritz's technology by reading The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen R. Covey using the Spritz app on uh, the Spritz, I guess, widget, Right mm -hmm. there, you can try it at 250 words, 300, all the way up to 600 words a minute and see how it works. It's pretty cool. I mean, I've tried it a little bit. I haven't tried it with the book length thing. Um, I might try it with this. It takes a little getting used to, but I think yeah, for a lot of readers, it's not going to be for everyone, but for a lot of readers, this is a really cool thing. Yeah, I think it takes, a, I agree, it takes a little time to get used to. I was looking at it uh, last night on my phone, um, the, like flashing one word at a time. Uh, just takes a minute. But I also was kind of thinking, yeah, when we talked about spritz, we both talked about how it would be a great way to read nonfiction. Yeah. That maybe like a flashing speed reading app is not the way you want to interact with a novel, but for just dumping information into your brain, uh, this might work well. Um, really, the only way that I'm going to read The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People is if I can read that. Are we the only hurry. two people not to have read this? 
I don't know. I think a lot of people say that they've read like it. Like this book came out in like the <laughs> 80s or something. Like this is or one like, of those big like, like productivity you books, your, right? You put it on your office bookshelf because you're supposed to. I don't know. I'm, I think one I of the habits of highly suspicious. effective people is not to read books <laughs> called what the habits of highly effective people are. I don't know. Says the, the team of people who have like collectively our digital shelves of productivity yeah, and know, creativity books. True. I don't know. We might be. But anyway. Um, pots calling kettles. Anyway, you can try it out there. I think it's interesting. I'm not sure if this is going to be a thing. Like, I feel like, I feel like subscription eBooks are a thing. Like, I'm not sure Spritz is, but maybe there's enough people out there that will like it, that there's a business here. And that's another thing to say about Oyster is I don't think for, for both of us, uh, you and I, it's not a replacement. Mm -hmm. It doesn't like stand in for all of our reading, but it's a super cost effective like piece of our reading yeah, lives. The, the way that I've been using it is for um, primarily for backlist because new titles aren't available in Oyster when they're first published. It's similar to Netflix in that way. Also, there's a delay, um, but it's, I think it's been great. I like to browse it and just see which books are there that have been on my radar at some point, but that I've never gotten around to. And I put those on my reading list and then I'm like, oh, okay, great. Like, uh, I love Anthony Bourdain's books. I just never got to Medium Raw, which is his third memoir. And I read that on Oyster last week. I think it's a compliment to your reading life. It's not a replacement for the other things you're doing. Um, I mean, it could be. I mean, it depends on the kind of reader you are. But for us, right, I don't if you, think it if is. If you're a reader who, I guess, yeah, if you're a reader who you read, you know, two or three books a month. Um, there are certainly enough books available in Oyster that you could do all of your reading through it. If you like to be reading new releases as well, or you want some deeper backlist options from other publishers, you're probably going to keep buying mm-hmm. books. Like, you know, uh, I think you and I are both almost everything that we buy now is digital. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm still, you know, I'm buying eBooks. Um, I'm reading Oyster and then I read in print from galleys that come to my house. So at any given time, I have something going in Oyster and something going in another e-reading app and something going in print likely as well. Um, if you're a reader who does that, it's a, it's just a great option to have for bouncing back and forth. And I like it for essay collections and short mm. stories a lot too, for dipping in and out of things as you're bouncing between devices and running errands. But anyway, that's what kind of, I think Spritz might, f- I mean, I don't think maybe there will be someone, let's say that Spritz becomes a thing you can use on any device to read Mm -hmm. anything. I think maybe there will be some people that use it exclusively, but I think like a lot of new technologies, we sometimes get carried away and think this is going to be the new paradigm and everyone's going to do it this way. (laughs) Well, it doesn't need to be that to be successful. It could be just that Spritz is really good for certain use cases. Sure. And, you know, one thing I speculate about is if Google Glass or some equivalent ever becomes a thing, Spritz would be really helpful there because it doesn't take a lot of real estate and you can flash one word at a time mm-hmm. or like a, or tech, reading text messages and a heads up display. Or I, There's a lot of use cases that don't quite exist. And reading seven habits of highly effective people may or may not be, you know, the best right. use case. I, I just don't know. Um, anyway, let's talk about new books. Um, we got to get, we got to get the heck out of here. We do really quickly. I, I won't go into the full details, but I do want to talk about the awesome thing of the week. Um, oh, right. Harry, yeah, I was back some up, Harry right. Potter fans created a massive open online course for Hogwarts. So like, if you're still pissed that your owl never showed up at the window, inviting you uh, to jump on at platform nine and three quarters and go take the history of magical creatures course. Uh, you can now take the, this Hogwarts course, uh, which is located at Hogwarts is here. 
uh, hogwartsishere.com. Um, it's just beginning, but a group of rabid, awesome Harry Potter fans created this inspired by the classes that the kids go to at Hogwarts in the books. And mm. so you can, you know, read a bunch of material that's been uploaded and write essays about it and take tests. <laughs> that's awesome. You, you pick your house. There's uh, sadly, there is no sorting hat, but you pick your own house. Mm. It's like a, a, a massive open online course crossed with a role playing game and man that thing it just makes me want to kiss the internet that sounds like when a lot things of like this exist so those are our heroes of the week oh and related to that um speaking of uh potter mania i guess mm. uh rolling has been writing quidditch match reports for pottermore <laughs> like that's great like, you know well clearly fake but like you know she's been writing as if these matches really happened and giving play-by-play -play and analysis um for pottermore so if, the, if you're a harry potter nerd of a certain kind the one or both of those things might uh, scratch a particular itch you have, but that's cool. And that's awesome. That is God, awesome. The Harry Potter, you know, I mean, right. Please someone go sign up for classes at Hogwarts yeah, and tell us how it is. and report back, report back. Uh, Don't make it a we fake want to know. report. Actually report right back. Now. All right. So you uh, talked about sex criminals. Tell us, tell people about that. Real quick. Okay. So sex criminals is a comic about a librarian uh, who, when she climaxes stops time, and she has felt like alone and a freak for her whole life. Um, but she meets this nice guy and they go home together. And when they're having sexy times, I'm trying to be family yeah, friendly here, but I don't know yeah. how you talk about this. It's all right. Well it's also. okay. This is all good, uh, clean fun. Yeah. They, uh, they get together and she calls it the quiet. She mm -hmm. climaxes and then time stops and uh, it looks really beautiful in the panels uh, in the story. Like it's all purple and blue and sparkly in the background. Time stops and it's very quiet. Um, but when she gets with with this guy, she looks around in the quiet and he's there too. And it turns out that he also has this I, a skill or quirk or uh, I don't know what ability, you call it. Characteristic, ability, yeah, right. Yeah. It's a, it's an ability. Um, and this, this woman's library is in trouble and the guy wants to help her. And so uh, they cook up this plan that they're going to use their time stopping abilities to rob banks and not get caught. Nice. Um, but of course it is more difficult than that. Mm. Um, it turns out that they are not the only two people in the world who can create the quiet. Um, it's a really sweet, really funny comic. Um, it I'm does not surprised. Write... Matt Fraction, who's the writer, also yeah, writes Hawkeye, Hawkeye, which I right? love. Which you love. Yeah. Um, it, I think what's really notable about it, in addition to this just being an awesome concept, like if you're not sold on a comic about a librarian who stops time when she climaxes, then I don't know what to do for mm -hmm. you. Um, but it does write by women and sexuality, which is huge for comics, which very frequently do not do right you know, by women and sexuality. With comicsology and sort of the, the arc of comics over the last decade or so, but it's become comics are becoming more mainstream, but also my, more diverse in terms of the kinds of comics, but also the kinds mm -hmm. of reader. And this is a yeah. good example of that. And, and Wired had a great, uh, so Sex Criminals Volume 1 is what's out this week. It's a, if you are not buying the trades every month or so when they come out from your comic shop or reading them on Comixology, this is a bound collection, I think, of the first five yeah. trades. Mm -hmm. um, so you can get a bunch of the story arc at once. Uh, Wired did a great interview with Matt Fraction where they asked him, you know, like, oh, well, sex comes up in comics so frequently. Why did you want to do another comic about sex? And he points out, like, you know, actually, 
a lot of comics do sex, but it's not sex that real humans identify with. It's as opposed to time stopping orgasms. Right. right. I mean, (laughs) it's, well, it's like sex for titillation, women's women's bodies for titillation and sex criminals is not, if you're looking for titillation in a comic, you're not going to find it in sex criminals. But if you want to see uh, a really, you know, human and humorous, take uh, with a great concept around it. I just think it's really fantastic. Chip Zdarsky draws it. Uh, it's gorgeous and funny. And um, the letters at the back of the comics, which I hope are included in the Bound uh, edition as well, are so great. There's this arc, in the, I think, in the first um, trade where or the first issue where the guy, when the, when the two people are talking to each other about how they discovered that they could do this thing, he's like, well, I found this porn in the woods. <laughs> and people all over the country write letters to Matt Fraction and Chip Zdarsky and tell them about the porn that they found like in the woods <laughs> when they were kids. This is a real thing. Finding porn in the woods? <laughs> Yeah, it is apparently. I asked Twitter, and Twitter was like, "Oh yes, this is a real thing." And people started tweeting me their stories about. It's amazing. About it's so amazing, all the way around. Just a great, great comic. Um, I think also if you've been kind of skeptical about comics or you haven't known where to start, it's a really friendly place to start. There's no like universe that you have to understand. <laughs> you don't have to understand or, Age of Ultron and go the right, Secret Wars and canonical yeah, history. How many times superheroes. Uh, Wolverine has been traveled to the right, past? Right. It's great. Um, I also, this is a, a kickback to a couple weeks ago because I just missed it when it came out. But uh, earlier this month, A Few Seconds of Radiant Film Strip, a memoir of seventh grade by Kevin Brockmeyer came out. He's a novelist. Um, his novels, The Illumination and A Brief History of the Dead are two of my very favorites ever. And he has other novels also. But uh, this is a memoir of his seventh grade year. And it's basically the only way that I would ever want to relive seventh grade is like through <laughs> someone else's seventh grade. Um, but he tells it in third person so that Kevin is the main character, but he's narrating it from outside, um, which I thought was really unique and also very brilliant because the horrors of seventh grade are universal, but they feel so personal mm. uh, that he tells this story in a way that he gets extra distance from it to talk about himself Man, as a character. seventh grade is the worst. Like, universally is, the worst, right? It is universally the worst. And you will cringe and, like, cry and remember the horrible things that happened to you in seventh grade, but also feel really affirmed that the horrible things happened to everyone in mm-hmm. seventh grade. Um, but he, he telling it in third person, I think, really gave him the distance to open up a lot and it lets the reader identify and sort of insert their own seventh grade experience too. And because it's just not enough to tell this kind of story and make it awesome. They also, the hardcover version of the book, rather than being a cloth with a, um, cover slipped over it is just a yellow like plasticky feeling hardcover with the design built right onto it it feels like an old school textbook from the 70s nice uh, it's great it is an awesome it does look like a 70s film strip title it, card like, the I, cover like i wanted to like lick it when i opened it when it came in the <laughs> mail it's such a pretty great book um it's one definitely worth buying in hardcover because of the way that it's packaged um and speaking of another thing that would be a great gift or beautiful just in hardcover because you like it. Uh, Fictitious Dishes, an album of literature's most memorable meals by Dinah Freed is out this week. Um, She did photographic interpretations of famous 
culinary and meal moments from literature. So you've got the tea party from Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, the gruel from Oliver Twist, <laughs> that chicken breakfast in To Kill a Mockingbird. Oh, yeah. Uh, apparently, there were seductive cupcakes in the corrections. I don't remember that, the but it's in this book. corrections. Boy, yeah, I mean, I don't remember the cupcakes from 14 Jonathan years ago Franzen's when I read that book. Jonathan seductive cupcakes. I don't, I don't know. know. Uh, but it looks beautiful. I've seen some broadsides um, from the book and like a gorgeous thing to put on your coffee table or have as a centerpiece uh, for a literary nerd dinner party. And again, that's called Fictitious Dishes. And those are our new books. Those are our new books. And we and better, we got to get out of here. We, we got to get out. Everyone's running late. They're in their car in their driveway waiting us for to wrap up so they can go. I'm sorry, and friends. Thanks for hanging out We just had too much us. exciting things. So let's skip our Twitter stuff and our iTunes stuff. You can find us on Twitter and on iTunes. Book Riot, Rebecca Shinsky and Jeff O'Neill. The, the one I'm going to plug again is um, shoot us an email for if you want a recommendation for a dad or a mom or a grad. If you want to give them gifts. Uh, book-related gifts, or yourself. You don't need a special occasion to ask us for a recommendation for yourself. You're worth it all the this time, is, man. This is your shot um, until we do it again, at least. <laughs> um, <Yeah>. but, <laughs> Probably until the holidays. But also you can find the show notes at bookriot.com slash podcast, as always. And thank you guys so much for listening. And thanks to Oyster and Audible for sponsoring. Have a great week. 